You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Rod McQueen. Rod is an Australian rugby union coach. He started his coaching career in the 1980s before taking over the New South Wales Waratahs in 1991. From there, he went on to become the inaugural coach for the Brumbies in the newly formed Super Rugby competition. And in 1997, he was appointed as the head coach of the Australian Wallabies. And that team goes on to win the 1999 World Cup, the Tri-Nation Series for the first time, the Bledisloe Cup three years in a row, and then it culminates with being the first Australian team to win over the British and Irish Lions in 2001. Rod is also a successful business owner, and in this interview talks about the similarities between sport and business when it comes to leadership, culture, and strategy. Some of the other key highlights of our discussion include the journey of the Australian team towards winning the World Cup, and how we laid out the path to that victory by focusing on three key elements, the beginning, the journey, and the destiny. His views on the fine line between arrogance and confidence, how he used business plans to outline the vision for his teams, and a key part of that plan was the coaching succession plan to replace him, and the importance of empowering the players to make decisions so that the coach can look forward and try to see what is going to happen next. This was a terrific conversation with Rod, and I hope you get as much out of it as we did. 
And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And while you're there, if you'd like to help our podcast, which is fully independent and free from ads, you can follow the link to our Patreon page, where we offer exclusive content to our supporters. And now, please enjoy our interview with Rod McQueen. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Good morning, Rod McQueen, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. Rod, could we start with something really simple? Where are you in the world and what have you been up to so far today? Okay, so I'm living on the northern beaches in Collaroy in Sydney, New South Wales. Lived here most of my life, been involved with surf clubs and rugby and all the sort of things you'd expect, I guess, an Australian living on the coast and run my businesses nearby most of the time, sometimes in Sydney, but more recently um, working from home. So, Rod, you've coached all over the world, many, many different countries. You've been to the World Cup. You've coached in France, all through Europe. And I'm sure through these journeys, you've had your chance to see some good coaches up close and probably some ones that aren't so good. But could I start by asking you, what is it you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? Uh, Well, firstly, I'd like to define coaches, if I may, because I don't think coaches, be they rugby coaches or other sports coaches, are any different to businessmen. And I think the same principles apply. So a lot of my, I guess, heroes and people that I really admire are businessmen as well as coaches, I would say. Phil Jackson from the Chicago Bulls would be someone I'd bring up as a coach I had a lot of time for, done some great things. I loved his his motto of we, not me, put the team first and certainly used that a lot myself. From an Australian perspective, Jack Gibson was one that really inspired me, I guess, someone that thought a little bit differently about things and one of his great attributes is believe in the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid. And I think those things now are very important to me. Uh, David Clark was a business mentor for me. He was Macquarie Bank and a rugby man, and he has certainly helped me in business, but also a lot of the principles in business and, and as I say, rugby coaching have always been the same to me. As far as other coaches are concerned, rugby coaches, Pierre Velcreux, John Hart, Ian McIntosh, they were great people to share ideas with and one of the things I think that made them special is they weren't afraid to share ideas. They weren't insular in their approach and they, they realised that the more you shared ideas, the greater opportunities you had yourself because you're learning things but also you can go ahead further. You need to be thinking further ahead as you go. And I guess the final part of that is the importance of not seeing changing things or change as a risk the greatest risk is not changing. So I suppose you're talking about the worst type of coaches, the ones that I believe are insular and, you know, don't give away anything and are not prepared to change. They keep doing the same things. Rod, you said something interesting there. You've had a very successful business career as well, but but you said coaching and leading a business is similar. What I'd like to do is flip that around a little bit and ask you, where are they not similar? Where are they mainly different? They're mainly different in that sport doesn't think it's a business and therefore generally is not nearly as good at things as businesses are. That's probably the biggest difference I can say. They think the sport's different, therefore they should be doing things differently. And I think a lot of the times get too involved in the kudos and things that go with sport and don't realise sports are a business. It's about entertainment, 
getting the spectators on side, making the people that are there, well, having making sure they enjoy themselves, your employees, and things go on. So I would probably say the biggest difference is sport being perceived as well, sporting coaches and sporting personnel as perceiving themselves as anything different. Rod, there's been many times in your life where you've experienced severe illness, rheumatic fever, tumours, pneumonia, and of course, cancer. How have these experiences shaped your leadership style? One particular time that I had a pituitary tumour that nearly resulted in my death when I was 40 years old was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. In a nutshell, what it did was make me sit back and realise there's a hell of a lot more to life than just trying to achieve and understanding the importance of having a balance in life and everything you do. I thought about the amount of times that I'd be running up you know, hills on the northern beaches of Sydney, maybe piggybacking someone you know, because I was going to go on a surfboat race or I was involved in rugby and never sort of took the time to sit around and look at the landscape and the beautiful area I lived in and the things that came with that. And I suppose the sacrifices a lot of my family made around the selfishness that I had during those times trying to achieve. And so I say I remember lying in a hospital bed that looked over over some of those places I'd run, realising just how much I'd missed out on. And yeah, I've got to say I was a lot more successful in everything I did after that, putting things into perspective. And I always say take time out to smell the roses and have a balance in life. And it was a big lesson for me, but a very important one. Rod, if you were talking to another leader, no matter what their age, young or old, what advice would you give them on finding more balance in their life? What things could they be doing differently based on your experience? I think probably listen to the families more to start with and getting an understanding of what it is that's driving the people, whether they're coaching a women's sport or a men's sport, to understand there's a lot of things that go around that. And particularly with amateur sports, the way it is these days, involves the whole family because it's you know, a very big part of our life. And sometimes more than 60% of your life is we're talking about as a sport. So to understand more about what's going on around you and making sure you take that into account in the things that you do would be right up there to be the first thing you start thinking about. When you're talking about success and putting teams together and understanding what it's all about to be into a professional sport, and I guess following that is what happens afterwards. Now, understanding now while you're in there during that time, are you preparing for afterwards and where that goes? And all of that sort of comes in, I guess, as part of the culture that we're looking to at the time when you're developing as a, I guess, as a leader. Rod, in 1991, you were coaching New South Wales and the team had this amazing run of 10 successive victories, twice defeating their traditional rivals, Queensland, as well as the national teams of Wales and Argentina. What do you remember learning most about yourself during that early run of success? Well, I guess starting off with a business plan was always important. And so having a business plan was probably a bit unusual in those days because it was amateur rugby. So that particular year was the year of the World Cup. So we talked about you know, the importance of being doing well, of beating Queensland to get the most amount of players we could into the Australian team. But it also gave me the opportunity to actually have a bit of fun and work with a lot of other business professionals that I knew through the different sports, surfboat, rowing and rugby, 
So I got a lot of the businessmen in those groups together and we put together a fairly professional business plan for that year, which included going to Argentina, coming back through New Zealand and then being pretty well prepared by the time we came in against Queensland. So it was a fairly well thought out plan, I suggest, for that year. And little things like starting on time at 6.30, you'd start, whereas I'd been to some of the training sessions before and just everyone would wander in about, start wandering about 6.30 and then finish it. And then the last person would come in at 7 and then I'd probably go for another hour after training. And little things like saying, well, we'll start training when the last person comes in and we'll train for exactly an hour and a half, and then we'll finish off exactly an hour and a half later. And we, for the first time, amazing thinking back that far, we had training jumpers. Now, that was never heard of before. So just bringing that sort of professionalism and way of thinking into it was a, you know, made it a bit of a fun year, and it was pretty different for the players for that reason because they hadn't been used to that. And I suppose part of that business plan was also to, to have a secession plan in place to have another coach ready to go, and that was Greg Smith who sort of came in during the year, during those times, to have him there seeing what was going on and be ready to take over in the future because that was all the business plans I did always had a succession plan in place, whether it be two or three years. I always thought it was always good to have something in place for when I got out. Rob, was that succession plan to help you as the head coach cope with the intensity of the situation Or was it more for the culture of the team and for the club to realise that this is a defined period that they needed to focus on? I think a bit of both. We had some pretty intelligent people in that team, and Nick Farr-Jones and Simon Poitivan, and very dedicated athletes. And it was great to be able to put something, and they were in very good jobs, I'm sure, at the time. So it was good to sort of actually put them in that position where they understood it was going to be a lot more professional, and I think they respected that. I guess in response to it, they performed a lot better on the field as well. We understood, we knew what we wanted to do. We talked about playing a little bit differently and really understood what we wanted to achieve. So, Rod, from there you go on and you become the inaugural coach of the Super Rugby Brumbies in 1996. And that team was undefeated on home soil for two years. And this was that period when you really started innovating. But you were also learning a lot at the time from other sports coaches in Australia. Could you tell us about that period of time? Yeah, look, it was a very exciting time. I mean, rugby going professional for the first time and starting off with a new team in Canberra was very special. Uh, I had to think about it long and hard because I was involved in my business and as it turned out, I had a very good partner who came in as managing director and I then shifted to be chairman of that business and worked out of Canberra and obviously came uh, as a stage in my life where my kids had grown up and so I was with, took my wife Liz down with me and that gave me you know, lots of time to think about things. Once again, we put together a pretty solid business plan as to what it was all about. We talked about you know, how we're going to go about things, had a succession plan in place. Again, from day one, I think we had a two-year plan would have been the first thing I put on that the business plan for the Brumbies. Exciting times coming up with the name, the Brumbies, and you know, getting people involved in that there was about 50 different names we had, to look, we had to look at and it was nice to be able to come up with a name that was synonymous with the area, with the, the man from Snowy River and all of those. I think we had sort of 
some of the names were originally might have been the Kookaburras or something, but we had some pretty ordinary names listed out. So I was pretty happy in the end when we came up with the name Brumbies. And we didn't end up with the Cicadas, which might have been a bit hard to understand. So some of those times were great, but it was just start off new and have a base camp for the first time to be able to talk about you now what it is we wanted to do. One of the things I think in Canberra at the time, we have a bit of a siege mentality. We're going to show them and they're all against us. But we use that a little bit more to our, I guess, to our favour to understand that there's a fine line between arrogance and confidence. And I think confident person respects his opposition. So I've really talked about the importance of knowing the opposition and respecting them over that period of time, even though we were happy for the, I guess, for the press to say that we had a siege mentality and so on. But we really did understand the opposition. We did a lot of work and also understanding the importance of now going professional. What other places? We were very lucky that we'd had AFL, we had rugby league, we had soccer. So very early on we learned a lot from what they had, not what sort of video areas were they taking, what were their stats areas, and we were able to get onto those quite early on and we are using those gratefully to, to our advantage over that period of time. The other things we're looking at is looking at the game differently we had the sort of thing I would say is over the years, a kickoff as an example for rugby. And generally, times I guess 80% you'd kick off to the left because you had a right foot kicker. They'd kick to the forwards of the opposition that were standing there and they'd have their second rowers standing there. So generally, you'd kick to the tallest guy in the opposition. 80% of the time, the opposition would win the ball and we'd have our forwards running up and chasing them. And that, that was the way it was done. So starting to think about those sort of things and saying, well, what about if we didn't kick to the tallest guy on the field and we decided we had a system in place where we knew where we were going to kick the ball and we decided we'd kick to a weakness and we would then try and exploit that weakness and, and change those percentages back to 80% chance of us getting the ball back. They're the sort of things we you know we would talk about. And also going from two days a week to, you know, to seven days a week, being able to talk about and different ways of doing things. And that's when we'd have a group of four or five players and and put them all away and say, Let, let's come back and talk about what we can do in the lineouts. And that's where we created things like the pod systems in the lineouts where we having you know, they were allowing people to lift so we could actually change who the lifters were, where they went in the lineout. So all of those things started to sort of eventuate through those sort of programs we're putting together in the Brumbies, and but we didn't say much about it, which was lucky. But we just gradually sort of went and started those things, things like the kickoff variations, the pods, what we call starter moves, a series of moves that were put together, which was just a way of starting a play. We might have had five or six different ones of those. But all of those were starting in those first two years and we were just not saying any, anything about it. But we were really starting to, you know, look at the game differently. And that was quite exciting, I guess, as an inner sanctum to know the things we were doing but not really telling everyone what was going on, I guess, as we went. The other important thing was the role my wife Liz played in ensuring that we had a, a family environment within the group. It was the early days of professionalism and we'd often talk about what was happening and how we should convey this to the families. Wives and families were very much included in the planning and Liz made sure that she was able to play a big part in this and this resulted in achieving a happy and positive group. Rod, we're 
just a couple of years out now from the Rugby World Cup in 2023 in France. And as the world's best coaches prepare and start to get ready, where do you think they should be innovating to try and get an edge? Well, I think not seeing change as risk would be ones we talked about. The same things apply. Now, the greatest risk is not changing and not thinking ahead. I'm a great believer in Sun Tzu. He said, know yourself and know your enemy in a thousand battles. You'll never be in peril. I think they're the sort of things that are important and also high standards are very important, but how you understand what those high standards are as a coach, you know, you can come over for a very big win and say that's great, but they, they actually played really badly. It's up to the coaches to understand they didn't play well so that they know that they're being judged on on the standards that you have as a player and as a coach. And I guess the other thing is to always question the status quo. If it's done that way, why is it done that way? That would probably be right up there with my thoughts. Respect have always been number one for me, respecting the opposition. Therefore, if you know the opposition, you have much better chance of being successful. But certainly always always questioning the status quo and seeing what you can do to do better. Why do you think more coaches and leaders don't innovate these days? What stops that? I just think it's... Lots of people can visualise. There's an art in doing that. Edward de Bono was very good at thinking differently. Different people think different ways. There are different ways of achieving those sort of things. An example for me would be if I was going to get someone to come up with an idea and innovate, I wouldn't get any more than five people because if I was going to look at a colour, for instance, in the businesses I've been in and I wanted to get a dynamic colour and I had a, a group of people, a consensus, I guess, opinion, They'd always come up with grey as the colour, grey decision. And so by having small groups doing things, you're more likely to come up with a dynamic decision. And that would probably, you know, as a, again, as a manager, as a coach, I'd always make sure you know, any group that I looked at putting things together would always be probably no more than five. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Rod, you go on to take over the Wallabies in 1997, and they too go on this amazing run. Over the next four years, they win the 1999 World Cup, the Tri-Nation Series for the first time, the Bledisloe Cup three years in a row, and then it culminates with being the first Australian team to win over the Lions. What were some of the first things you did when you became coach of the Australian team that helped fuel these results? 
to get to understand the team first because I came in late. So I basically didn't do much at all early on. I just wanted to get a bit of a feel for what the team was in the second half of the year. But I guess took a lot of lessons from the Brumbies, what we'd been doing with the Brumbies. But it was also important not for it to be a, an offshoot of the Brumbies and make sure that Queensland and, and New South Wales always had their same and also took in, into account their culture and so on as we went. But here was, again, you know, a professional team for the first time. What are we going to do? We're so used to doing things. We're, they were used to staying in the best hotels in Australia and going out there for two days before we played a test match. The other thing was the game had changed even in that couple of years leading into professions. The game was changing dramatically and yet the coaching manuals that we had were split into forwards and backs. And so we were still back in, this is what the forwards do, this is what the backs do. And so we had to actually think on our feet and decided from day one we'd get a group that would go around and go to all the states and try and fast track a way of thinking. Again, examples of that is we had to think where the game was going to be in two years, and in our case, two years was going to be the World Cup. How much was the game going to change in those two years? And once we decided where we think that was going to go, an example of that, how much fitter the players were going to have to be, the fact that the game was going to be so much faster, the fact that there was going to be so much more put into defence, all of those things we needed to take into account. So we needed to then decide that's where we're going to go, but then select the people that we thought would be the right, including the players, people for positions, not positions for people, was the best way I could describe that. So that's why we you know, had people like John Muggleton from Rugby League, who was a defensive coach for Parramatta at the time, got Stephen Nance, who was a Rugby League physical structure for the Broncos. He'd already been working with the sort of fitness that they that we would need, uh, now training seven days a week. We got all the, the different video equipments, all of the statistics, put all those things together and got the right people that would come and do that. So all of those people came in or were all part of it to give us the opportunity to give us the best possible chance and to be as far ahead as we possibly could by that second year. So all of those things have been taken into account even so much as bringing the families together for the first time and staying in Caloundra, we chose Caloundra, so, which was apartments and so on was a lot more normal, including the wives and the kids and everything we did. And that stage started off giving the wives the same diaries as the players got so they knew what the outline was going to be for the next two years. Now, that had never been done before and, of course, within months we were now talking going off computers, but... Even those early days, everyone was looking at diaries. So it was a massive change and we put it into three different areas, which was the beginning, the journey and the destiny. And so we wore T-shirts, for instance, with the beginning written on it. And then when we got to the stage where we thought we were understanding where we were going, we had the journey and then when we went into the World Cup, we were in the destiny phase of what we did. All of those things had been played out. In the meantime, we're looking at other things that came from other sides. For the first, again, we're talking unders and overs that come from rugby league and we're doing that. Now, all of those things are now sort of just normal things in rugby, talking 20 years later, of course. But things like ensembles, unders and overs, the multi-phase plays, all of those things were in our bag, I guess, as we went and we were able to just concentrate on those things and have them. So 
how much we concentrated on our defence, how important that was for us over that period of time, how much we really, how much time we spent making sure it was right but didn't say too much about it. And finally, the amount of work we did on the opposition. Now, we had really good intelligence on the opposition. We would look at it and we'd do a SWOT analysis on them early in the week and we'd talk about what were the strengths and the weaknesses and how we were going to exploit that, what we were going to do with it. All of that was very much part of our now, every day-to-day workers, I guess, is in our plan to become the best team in the world. So, as usual, we put forward a business plan for the Wallabies for the next two to three years. And part of that business plan was to have a succession plan in place for the next coach. Um, started off very early, including Eddie Jones and a lot of things we were doing day-to-day. And it was interesting to see in the fourth year, it was Eddie Jones who ended up getting the spot. Rod, culture has always been core to your philosophy. I've heard you talk about it in many other interviews as well. If you walked into a new organisation today, what would be the key elements of a successful culture that you would look for? Well, I think I've already mentioned we, not me. I think that's really important. But it's also important you can't make a culture. A culture is like a cake. It's got to be made. It's got to come together. Just little things like making sure that we had the classic Wallabies come and present the players with the jumper. You know, we were starting to get a rift between the players and the new modern players. And a lot of the culture that those other players had that had been there and represented Australia hadn't been paid and so on. Now, to learn from that past and to let them see our culture. So much we bring those players in and they would make sure that they talked about some of the things they did in those days and surprisingly enough, it wasn't that different and they got on very well. It was you know, a very big part of what we did. Um, I think respecting the little things like making sure that everyone knew the worst of the anthem. I remember when Patricia Noriega came in that part of what we talked about with him is, you know, you, can, you really need to know the worst of the anthem. And so on the Friday night before the Saturday game, he got up in front of the whole team and saying the anthem word for word, very proud. Players were very much part of the decision-making process as to what, you know, we were going to do within the team. And therefore, if they were part of getting that culture together, they believed in it. So they weren't told what to do. They were inclusive in what they did. But that doesn't mean it was always. There was times, obviously, that, some of the things that were suggested were probably, I would say, not in the best interest of the team, and we had to be very careful how we went about that. But culture's built, as I say, culture's like a cake, and a lot of it has got ingredients that we already know that are important, but they all come together when everyone is part of, of bringing it together and believes in it and is part of it. Rod, one of the themes that runs through your answers is change, bringing in change, innovation, however you want to term it. I imagine when you bring in change, you also get criticism and resistance. And so I wanted to ask you, how have you gone about dealing with critics over the years and whether you've got any advice for people who may be listening and experiencing criticism because of the change that they're implementing, that they're bringing into their organisations? That's a good point. I think you've always got to accept there are people that, that don't accept change and don't want change. I'm very much on the right side of that. So on the by that I mean right-brained, and so that's what I've always done. Basically, 
fairly creative backgrounds, commercial art, and I tend to draw things and understand things in my mind rather than actually write things up. And so that's how I think more than anything. But you've also got to accept that there's people that don't see that straight away and you've got to go around working out how that goes. And as I say, I think I've already mentioned Edward de Bono and some of the ways that he was able to get around making those things happen. And that's probably, that's I've taken a leaf out of that book to try and get players to be part of it and to understand and therefore to be see the excitement of something that they've come up with work and what it does. There's very few things in life that remain the same. It's always going to be changing, so I'll always be on that. As I say, though, the important things like standards and things like that, they don't change, and they're very important, and sometimes you can you can make good at now you can make excuses to do that. And, and while I'm on that, I, people that don't understand sometimes, I know that some of the journalists I was involved in, particularly being in England, I remember one particular time in England when a journalist came across to me and asked if he could have a beer with me because he'd been talking to a particular player who told him that I do very little and he wanted to have a chat to it, with me about it. So when we got together, he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but he said, you do very little. In fact, a lot of the coaches are doing most of the work of training, they're coming up with a lot of the ideas, as are the players, and, and basically you're almost redundant. And I'm sorry to tell you that, but that's what he said to me. What, what have you got to say about that? And I said, well, you've actually probably paid me the greatest compliment I could have as a manager because if I've got a situation where these people are making these decisions, they're all part of it, they're happy to do it and they're good decisions, well, that allows me to be able to watch what's going on, be able to assess what's happening, but more importantly, look to the future, see what's going to happen next. And it was interesting. He still didn't understand that it was, was actually it was a great compliment. And if I had that in my business, I'd, as much as I would always like to have that in my business as much as I possibly can. One of the greats of all time, John Eels, was the captain through most of the time that you were the coach of the Wallabies. When it comes to selecting team leaders, what are the traits that you think are most important? I didn't know John very well when I first started out. And we had some interesting conversations. And one of the conversations was that he wasn't necessarily going to be captain just because he was before. And I remember when I was over in in Argentina, John came up and suggested that we might be better if we stayed at a different motel than the one we were in because the nightlife wasn't as good and the players had been speaking to him about it. We were about to go to Windsor. So I took that on board and told him we will definitely be staying in Windsor. We won't be going back to London. But we had a good conversation after that. The captain's role wasn't to be a player's representative. The captain's role was to do what he thought was in the best interests of the team, but also make that decision in with the rest of the management. And that was probably the only time that we had sort of words, I guess, that whole period of time. He was an amazing captain and he really went out of his way to understand that and understand that his role was very much, for instance, it was great for me to get his perspective on things when we'd walk off the field, for instance, at half time. I'd go to him first and get his perspective as what he was seeing and what he thought on the field before I actually put to the team what I was seeing from my point of view off the field. And before every match, we'd go through the what-ifs on a Friday night 
know, in talking about, you know, what who would come on, who wouldn't come on, what would happen, who would be kicking. So we all we understood each other all the time and it wasn't telling him what to do. I was just discussing with him from both sides. And so it was an ideal relationship based on trust and respect. And the other thing that we talked about was, again, that consensus decision I talked about. If all the players wanted to do it, it didn't necessarily mean it was best for the team. Now, that probably came up quite a lot. And understanding what was best for the team was the right decision, not what the players particularly necessarily all wanted. Rod, if I could take you back and introduce you to that, that young boy who was at school in Manly, rowing surfboats in the summer and playing league and union in the winter, knowing what you know now, what would you say to him? Well, I think it's, it's pretty obvious that from the time that I got that in that illness when I was 40, it changed my thoughts on things. I think to see and care more about the important things in life, to have high standards, but smell, smelling the roses and having a balance in life, you know, is the greatest lesson I learned through all of that. And I would have been much better off, I'm sure, during those period of time when I was so focused on achieving everything, it would have been nice to have that balance in life. It would have been a hell of a lot more enjoyable for me during those times as well. Right, perhaps just one last question if I could. And I'd like to start with a quote from actually one of your players, the journalist and and, uh, successful author, Peter Fitzsimmons. And when talking about you, he said, he's not a barge and basham coach, but nor does he have a particular rugby philosophy. Words that spring to mind about him are organisation, discipline, planning, intensity, secrecy and method. But Rod, in your words, what is the legacy you hope you've left as a coach? I'd like to think that the players and the sports support staff over that period of time had a special, memorable and enjoyable experience. Ones that they could take back to their families and to their everyday life and also lessons that they could learn for their business in the future and for their kids. And I suppose finally have lifelong friendships that have been made from. Lessons, memories and friends. Sounds like a pretty good place to finish. Rod, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great chatting with you and hearing the story behind the Wallabies and I wish you all the best for the future. Thanks, Paul. Hi, everyone. It's Paul here and you have been listening to our interview with the great coach, Rod McQueen. Some of the other key highlights for me were how a serious illness when he was 40 years old taught Rod about the importance of having a balance in life in everything you do. The importance of having the players be part of the decision-making process within the team and wanting to leave a legacy where people are able to aspire to high standards but also care about the important things in life like smelling the roses and having balance. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like the same nickname as others who said, this is not about sports, this is about leadership. Fantastic insights, thoughtful questions, and deep emotional interviews. And Jonathan, who said, it is great to listen to a series of those that really craft great public success and hear their strategies and tips. Something really unique and special in the podcasting world. Thank you both. The interaction with the people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes 
or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.